Hello, friends. I'm Luke, and I serve on the music team at Holy Family. We continue to hear stories from people like you who listen to the Holy Family podcast and consider Holy Family your church. And whether you're someone who's constantly on the go, hasn't found a church community where you live to which you can belong, or someone who's wondering about the shape of your faith, we are honored to be with you by sharing these reflections from our Sunday liturgies. We rely on the generosity of our congregation, which includes you wherever you listen, to help our ministry achieve and maintain financial health. If this podcast has been a gift to you, would you consider making a contribution so that we can continue offering resources that welcome questions, curiosities, and doubts? You can make a gift by following the link in our show notes. That's at holyfamilyhtx.org. From Holy Family HTX, an Episcopal church for people without a church, this is the Holy Family Podcast, a collection of ideas about leading a Jesus-centered life. We clearly explore the church's understandings while bringing our own questions, curiosities, and doubts, and we never demand fake agreement. Theological exploration is just better that way. So, let's take a moment of silence as we get ready to contemplate today's ideas. So not long after we moved into our first home together in Austin, before our children were born, my husband, Greg, got some trunks from small juniper trees that were being cleared in the neighborhood, and he hauled them to our house on foot in several trips. He used them to build a grape arbor over our back porch. We planted varieties of grape vines that thrived in our central Texas climate. The back of the house was south-facing, and and at that time there were a few trees in the backyard. So we wanted to have vines that grew over the porch, shading it and the windows in the summer, but leaving room for sunlight to stream through in the winter when the branches were bare. The vines were happy there. Over time, they came to erupt in a green abundance of leaves though I will say the birds got to eat more of the grapes than we really did. Greg eventually took cuttings from the vines and propagated them at his farm at work. We later were able to make wine from the year's harvest a few times. We were in relationship with those grapevines and loved them and what they produced. Only a few months ago did we have to tear it all down. The juniper structure that Greg built all those years ago was no longer solid, having shifted through strange freezes and droughts and could not hold the weight of the prolific vines. This is one example of many times that I have planted and nourished plants that I feel I have a relationship with. Sometimes joyful, sometimes frustrating, 
usually both. The people of ancient Israel would have known when they heard Isaiah or when they sung the Psalms that analogies related to gardens and food cultivation in particular are all about relationship. Food production was certainly an important economic consideration, but economy too was about relationship. Isaiah's parable about the vine that God planted is not about a mechanistic action between a thinking being and a non-thinking being or some sort of cold business deal. In fact, Isaiah tells us what it was about. It is a love song, a love song from a heartbroken God. The historical context of this passage is the prophet Isaiah discussing Israel's invasion by the Assyrian Empire. In this passage, Isaiah is linking Israel's invasion to their unethical behavior, particularly a preoccupation with riches and a neglect of the marginalized. So there are at least a few ways that it can be read. We can think about it from the perspective of the ancient authors. We can read it as a trauma narrative following a painful political defeat, as a cultural work of people who are asking questions about suffering, about how to make sense of destruction and disaster. How could this have happened? Or we can think about it from the perspective of the people whom it is about. It can be read as an underscoring, as underscoring the commitment of the people of Israel to justice and to the eradication of oppression even while it discusses their repeated lapse into human sinfulness. Or it can be read as a way to prompt questions and sometimes answers about who God is. And for me, this text brings up big questions like, is God a God who can be heartbroken about the behavior of God's people? I think so. Is God a God who would, after carefully tending and building up God's people, bring hardship and destruction on them because of their cruelties to one another? That one is hard to say. The image of a destructive and wrathful God may be as close to who God actually is as a grape is to an Israelite. But both images say something we need to know. God takes God's covenant with God's people seriously. God insists on right relationship and a centering of the marginalized. God's people matter deeply to God. God wanted the people of Israel to bear the good fruit of God's own labors, just as God wants us to do. So here's one of the things I love about scripture. It doesn't speak with one singular voice and perspective. It holds dialogue within itself. If the passage from Isaiah is a love song from a heartbroken God, the passage from the Psalms today is the people responding in their own love song. The psalmist says, Look carefully, God, at what you are doing. You so powerfully and tenderly 
brought us out of slavery in Egypt. You took such great care to plant and cultivate us, to nurture us. Why would you, after all this, come and destroy us? Come back to who you are, the psalmist seems to be saying to God. So this brings up another question for me. Is God a God who can be reminded by God's own people who God actually is and what God's promise is? This is not an unusual move in the Hebrew scriptures. People saying, remember God, who you have, who you are, who you have told us you are. But I wonder if many times the authors were not also writing to themselves. They were reminding themselves who God is. They were participating in the long arc of stories and songs and memories that ask and answer and wonder and argue and reassure about God. And all this happens in the company of the living God who is participating and inspiring the whole thing and who never, ever gives up on God's people. Like the desire that Greg and I had for the grapevines in our arbor that we loved, that we planted and cared for in hopes of the good they would do, God has a desire for us to grow and flourish. God wants us to bear good fruit. What does it mean to bear good fruit because of God's tender cultivation? And I'm not necessarily talking about the fruits that St. Paul lists in the passage we heard from Philippians. Fruit that includes his faithfulness to God's law, his zealousness, his own achievements. These are not bad things. But God desires the kind of fruitfulness that, like St. Paul's, comes from the awareness of being grabbed hold of by Christ. The fruitfulness that comes not from transaction, but from relationship. What does it mean to live knowing we have been planted and nurtured by the creator of the universe? Whom could we nourish? What shade could we provide? What delight could we give? So just this morning, when I got here, I felt inspired to share with you a bit of one of my favorite poems, one by Wendell Berry, called The Country of Marriage. <clears throat> Since we're talking about love songs today anyway, it's about marriage, but not only about marriage, because marriage is one of the many icons that God gives us to show us glimpses of who God is. So imagine this as a psalm, as a song of a psalmist singing to God. Our bond is no little economy based on the exchange of my love and work for yours. So much for so much of an expendable fund. We don't know what its limits are and that puts us in the dark. We are more together than we know. How else could we keep on discovering we are more together than we thought? You are the known way 
leading always to the unknown. And you are the known place to which the unknown is always leading me back. More blessed in you than I know, I possess nothing worthy to give you. Nothing not belittled by my saying that I possess it. Even an hour of love is a moral predicament. A blessing a man may be hard up to be worthy of. He can only accept it as a plant accepts from all the bounty of the light enough to live, and then accepts the dark, passing unencumbered back to the earth. As I have fallen time and again from the great strength of my desire, helpless into your arms. Amen. Find more resources to help you lead a Jesus-centered life at holyfamilyhtx.org. Again, it's holyfamilyhtx.org.